Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, as we open your word, even as we have just proclaimed in song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Heavenly Father, as we gather here, our hope this morning is not in our works. Our hope is not in our family. Our hope is not anything that we have done or said or can do and say. Our hope is in Christ alone. And even as we turn our attention to this passage this morning, even as we see a final call to faith and the cost of rejecting Jesus, may we be challenged. May we be encouraged to go to a dark world with the light of the gospel. We pray that you would be lifted up in this hour, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You probably have some kind of a morning routine that you go through. And each morning, you're faced with a choice. To get up in time to go through that routine, or to get an extra few minutes of sleep. Each morning as our alarm sounds or whatever it is that wakes you up, maybe you're one of those people that just wakes up naturally at the right time. Whatever it is that wakes you up, you're, you're given a choice. You get up or you hit snooze and you keep sleeping. But with every choice, there's a consequence. If you choose to snooze your alarm, if you choose to stay in bed a little bit longer, that's fine, but you're going to sacrifice something. You might have to sacrifice breakfast. You might have to sacrifice taking a shower that day. You're choosing to sleep instead of to do those other things. There's a consequence to the choices that you make. If you choose to sleep, you might get an extra 15 minutes of sleep. Or depending on some of you, you might get an extra couple of hours of sleep, depending on how early you get up to start getting ready and go through your routine. My brother used to always, when we wake up in the morning to, to go to school, he'd sleep as long as possible, but he was not willing to cut anything out of his morning routine. He would just take the fastest shower you've ever seen, and he would eat in the car. But the reality is that choices have consequences, do they not? When you make a choice to sleep longer in the morning, you have to cut something out. Or you choose less sleep so you can get up and get everything accomplished. Choices have consequences. Let's come to our passage this morning in John 12. We see that choices have consequences. We've been working our way through the book of John. We're coming to the end of John 12. We're coming to the end of Jesus' public ministry. The last several chapters of John deal with the more private, with Jesus and his disciples. As we come to the end of John 12, there is a, a truth that is put out. And that is the cost of rejecting Jesus. The cost. There's a final invitation to believe. 
And in the reality that if you reject, one day you will stand before God. There's a cost. As we work our way through this passage, we'll see a sad truth, a call to faith, and then a final warning. First thing we see in John 12, verses 37 to 43, is a sad truth. Verse 37 starts with the word, but. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. That word but includes us in that there is context. There's something that has just ended and now it's moving on. But, it's a transition word. As I mentioned earlier, John 12 comes at the end of Jesus' public ministry. It's kind of the, the closing off of his public, the transition to his more private ministry in the last days leading up to the cross. In John 12, verses 1 to 19, we saw the triumphal entry. As Jesus and his disciples enter into Jerusalem, as the crowds hail him, as they call for him. And yet we saw that there's a misunderstanding. Because these crowds that want to accept Jesus, they want to accept him on their terms. They don't want to accept Jesus as who he is. Then, as we saw last week, verses 20 to 36, you have the, the Gentile inquiry. As these Greeks, these Gentiles come. And on the heels of the triumphal entry, when the Jews, when the religious leaders who should be accepting Jesus, as they reject him, as they misunderstand, and they reject who he really is, you have these Greeks who come and say, we want to see Jesus. And that signals to Jesus that the time has come. All throughout the book of John, Jesus said time and time again, my time has not come. My time has not come. My time has not come. And now as we come to John 12, these Gentiles come to Jesus, and he says the time has come. The time of my glorification. The time when Jesus will go to the cross, when he will die, when he will be buried, when he will rise again, when he will ascend to heaven. So all this has gone on. In verse 36, after explaining his coming death, why he must die, Jesus says this, while you have the light, believe in the light. While I am here, believe in me, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Verse 37, but... He's given one final invitation, and then he says, but. Verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them. We've been working our way through the book of John, and we've seen many of these signs. So many, the word is actually tied to not just quantity, but quality. He has done so many great signs, some of your translations might say. He's done so many greats. And notice it doesn't say miracles. It says signs. That's what these miracles are. They are signs. They point to something. They point to someone. These signs that Jesus has done all throughout the book of John, all throughout his earthly ministry, point to the fact that he is the Son of God. God. 
that he is the Messiah. These signs call for belief. And he has done so many and so great signs before them, and yet they did not believe in him. As you come to John 12, 37, the problem is not lack of evidence. The problem is lack of faith. It's not that Jesus has been derelict in his duty as Messiah. It's not that he hasn't done enough signs. It's not that his signs fell short somehow. He's done more than enough. He's done amazing signs. Even as we saw in John 11, culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. We've seen that Jesus has power over nature. He has power over demons. He has power over death itself. And yet, they still do not believe. Their problem is not lack of evidence. It's lack of faith. And verse 37 might cause us to question everything. How can that be? How can Jesus come to a people who, who, who know the Old Testament and he can do these things and how can they not see? How, how, how is it that they can reject him? What is wrong here? How can this be? How can God's Son be rejected? What does this mean for God's plan? In verse 38, John addresses this issue. And he says that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. That's surprising, is it not? They've rejected Jesus. He's done so many signs before them. They did not believe him. Why? How? That the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. The Jewish rejection of Jesus might be surprising to us. It might be troubling to us. But it is not troubling to God. In fact, what you see here in verse 38 is it was foretold. In the first three verses of Isaiah 53 makes it clear. Isaiah 53, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We have those same words here in, 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 in John 12, 38, but it goes on, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he hid, as it were, our faces. We hid, as it were, our faces from him, for he was despised, and we did not esteem him. John makes it very clear that this is not surprising to God. It might be surprising to us. It might cause us to question everything. Has God lost control? How can his own people not believe? And John says, No, look! 
God foretold this. We knew this was going to happen. We knew he was going to be rejected. This is not surprising to God. In fact, look at verse 39. John here doubles down. The Jewish rejection of Jesus not only does not threaten God's plan, it fits perfectly into the sovereign plan of God. So much so that look at the strong language John uses here. Therefore, all right, so verse 38, they didn't believe in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. It's not just that they didn't believe. This is very strong language. They could not believe. And he quotes another passage from Isaiah. Passage that we read this morning, Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. This passage comes from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is probably a, well, a familiar passage to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord lifted up. But as that passage goes on, in fact, I'm going to read it. As that passage goes on, notice, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and he cried to another, one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the pulse of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. These first, eight pass, these first eight verses of Isaiah 6 are glorious. As Isaiah stands and he sees the glory of the Lord high and lifted up. And what a glorious scene this is. And they say, who will I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then verses 9 to 13 are surprising. Because this is the message. It's what we see right here in John 12. And I said, here am I, send me in verse 9 of Isaiah 6. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. 
God says, who will we send? Isaiah says, here I, here am I, send me. And God says, go. But they won't hear you. Go. But they won't see you. Go. But your ministry will fail. So Isaiah cries out, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste without inhabitant, the house is without a man, the land is utterly desolate, and he gives a, a, a striking scene. In Isaiah 6, the picture is this. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He volunteers, I will go, let me speak. And God says, go and speak, but they will reject you. They will not hear you, they will not see you, they will want nothing to do with you. Calvin, on Isaiah 6, verses 9 to 10, says this. He means to make his word a punishment to the reprobate, that it may render them more thoroughly blind, and that their blindness may be plunged into deeper darkness. It is indeed a dreadful judgment of God when he overwhelms men by the light of doctrine in such a manner as to deprive them of all understanding and when even by means of that which is their only light, he brings darkness upon them. Go and speak the truth, and the truth will push them farther away. There's something important to notice there in Isaiah 6. God says, verse 10, speaking to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull. As you speak, Isaiah, you will make their heart dull. As you speak, Isaiah, they will close their eyes. As you speak, Isaiah, they will close their ears. It is the message that causes their hearts to harden. The picture in Isaiah reminds me of sometimes when I was a teenager. My parents would, would say something to me, and because it was my parents who were saying it, I didn't want to hear it. I can think of specific times as a teenager when, when uh, my parents would say something, and because it was my parents, no, not, I don't want to do that. Not to throw teenagers under the bus. Maybe they're not all as rebellious as I was. But coming from your parents, you don't want to hear it. They might be saying the right thing, but it's because they who are saying it, you don't want to hear it. Your friend could then say the exact same thing, and you'll agree with it 100%. But if it's coming from your parents, you don't want to hear it. In fact, I can think of specific times when, when I'd, I'd, I would know what was the right thing to do, and I was going to do it, and I was, I was excited about that because, you know, I was, I was growing up, I was going to do the right thing, and then someone would say to me, hey, you know, you should do that. I was already going to do that before you told me. Now I'm not going to do it because you're going to think I'm doing it just because you said it. Is that not our rebellious hearts? And that's exactly what is going on in Isaiah. You're going to preach this message to you and it's the message that will cause them to further rebel. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in John 12. What John is saying. 
They could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Isaiah ties this passage to this exact situation. Just as Israel would not listen to Isaiah, just as Isaiah's message caused them to rebel further, the problem was not with the message. The message was the truth. But it caused them to go further. So in Jesus' ministry, the message that Jesus preached caused rebellion. It closed eyes and shut ears. It was a stumbling block. And if you're like me, this is a very difficult passage. How can this be? Understand what John is saying, that not only did the people not believe, but they could not believe. They must reject him. How can that be? I thought Jesus came to save. How can, they, how can you say, verse 39, they could not believe? I think there are several things that we must consider as we think through this, as we wrestle with this. First thing, they could not believe. The immediate context that they hear is talking about Jews, the people of God, his chosen people. This is not a rejection of morally good or neutral people. It is sinners. God is not here keeping something from them that they deserve. In fact, the surprise of John 12 should not be that they reject Jesus, but that by the grace of God, any accepts Jesus. That's number one. Number one, the fact that they reject Jesus should not surprise us. The fact that any at all accept Jesus, that should surprise us. Because these are, are, are sinners. They are not morally good or neutral. They are sinners like you and I are sinners. The surprising thing is that any believe, not that many reject. Secondly, Don't think that this is God's fault. Verse 37 makes it very clear. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. Verse 37 puts the hardening of their hearts on them and not on God. They are responsible for not believing. The message may have pushed it further, but it's still not God's fault. That is their fault. They are the ones who rejected Jesus. So not only, as we saw in point one, is God not keeping something from them that they deserve, but he is giving them exactly what they want. They rejected him. And it's difficult for us to reconcile us in our mind, but the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are never at odds. God is sovereign, and they are responsible for rejecting Jesus. And finally, three, think of this. As you come to a passage like this, remember 
John's larger point. Back up and see the bigger picture. John's point is that the rejection of Jesus, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, does not threaten God's plan. It fits perfectly into the sovereign plan of God. It takes this good news of the world to, to the world, even as we've already seen beginning to happen, as we saw last week, as the Greeks come and seek Jesus, and the Jews reject him. They are responsible for their decision. God is not keeping something from them that they deserve. He's giving them what they deserve. In fact, he's giving them what they want. They are the ones who chose to reject him. And at the same time, God is in complete control and God is accomplishing his purpose even through their rejection. So in these first several verses, we see some very heavy truths. The Jews reject Jesus and the sovereign plan of God. But of their own will, they reject Jesus. And as you come to verse 41, John says something remarkable. He says, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. It goes back to Isaiah 6. The day of the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, his train filled. And what John is saying here is that Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. John here states that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw Jesus in his glory. Think about that. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ in his glory when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. How powerful it must have been for Isaiah to, to see the glory of the incarnate Christ in Isaiah 6 and then to write Isaiah 53. He was rejected. Surely he has borne our griefs. Think about that. In the course of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in heaven, and then he saw the glory of that incarnate Christ that he saw. He saw his death. He wrote of his rejection. How many questions must have filled Isaiah's mind as he wrestled with this? How can that God who I saw and the people rejected, and they will reject him even to death. As Isaiah looking forward, we look back on that gospel. We look back on the incarnation of Jesus Christ as God takes on flesh. As he's rejected and as he dies. He's rejected. As I mentioned, the larger point that John is making here is simply the fact that the Jewish rejection of Jesus does not 
throw off or negate God's plan. It fits perfectly into what God is doing. And in verse 42, John goes on and says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. So it's not that the, the, the nation as a whole reject him. The majority reject him, reject him. But there's many who receive him, who believe in him. But, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. The rulers, those with power among the people, those with authority, they believe. But what is perhaps most difficult about this passage, what is very hard and very sad, is that evidently this is a recognition of the reality of who Jesus is. They believe the message that he is saying. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Look at these works that he has done. It's a recognition of reality, but of willful rejection because of comfort. They believe, they recognize, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They recognize who Jesus is. They believe it. But they're not willing to accept it because they like the praise of men more than the praise of God. As I was studying this week, many, many commentators lean towards the fact that these rulers actually did believe that they were saved. It was just a very weak faith. But personally, I struggle with that. In the context of John, I don't think that they could truly believe. I mean, we just saw last week uh, in verse in John 12 um Twenty-five. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. These people clearly love their lives. Not only that, but John 5, 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, to the rulers, how can you believe when you receive glory from one, from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He flat out tells them, you can't believe if you want glory from one another and not me. So I tend to lead that in this verse, these people believe, they recognize who Jesus is, but they are not willing to accept him. They're not saved. It's not just that they have a weak faith. They don't have a saving faith. Because they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. And so therefore, they're accepted in the synagogue. And they're barred from heaven. They lack the eternal perspective, and now they face the eternal reality of the wrath of God poured out on them in hell. Because they loved the praise of men. 
Was it worth it? Was it worth it? If we could get these men and we could have them on stage and we could ask them, was it worth it? I guarantee you every single one of them would say no. Like the rich man in Lazarus who was begging for just a drop of water, let me go and tell my brothers. These men wanted to be accepted in the synagogue. And they were. And they have to deal with that for eternity. And at the same time, notice this. Verse 42. They believed, but why is it that 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 belief did not move to saving faith? Because of the Pharisees. Those who should lead the people to Jesus are keeping people away. They did not believe because of the Pharisees. May we never keep people away from Jesus. May we not let tradition or standard or whatever it may be keep people from Jesus. Even among the rulers, many believed in him because of the Pharisees, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Because they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. Do you love the praise of men more than the praise of God? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God, they rejected Jesus. So the sad truth is that Jesus came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. As you move forward then to verse 44, you see a call to faith. Really, I could split this passage into just two. Through verse 43, a sad reality. Through verse 44 then to verse 50, the reality that God is behind the ministry of Jesus. But in that, there's two kind of subpoints: a call to faith and then a final warning. And the first thing we see, verse 44 uh, to 46, a call to faith. We don't know when this is, but at some point, Jesus stands up and Jesus cried out. He cried out with a loud cry. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. He cries out, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in he who sent me. You see, the big idea of this passage, verses 44 to 50, is those who accept Jesus, accept God. Those who reject Jesus, reject God. In 44 to 46, we see those who accept Jesus accept God. As an ambassador speaks for the President of the United States, so Jesus speaks for God. He represents Him. To reject Him is to reject God. Just as in a foreign country, to reject a country's ambassador is to reject that country's president, is to reject that country. 
He who believes in me believes not in me and him who sent me, the Father. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus speaks for the Father. In fact, Jesus and the Father are one. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. To accept Jesus is to accept the Father. I have come, Jesus says here, verse 46, I have come as a light into the world. And the light that Jesus brings is truth and life, as we see in John 1, verses 4 to 5. These, these themes, these ideas that are brought up in the first 18 verses of John, the prologue, carry through the book of John. And here in John 12, we return to that. I have come as a light into the world. The light he brings is the light of truth and of life. That whoever believes in me, so to believe in Jesus is to walk in the light. Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Darkness, sin, and death. I have come that you might believe in me and that in believing in me you might walk in the darkness, not walk in the light, not abiding in the darkness. And, verse 47, so that's a call to faith. This is why I have come. I've come as a light into a dark world. I have come to call to faith that you might not abide in darkness. But there's a final warning. If anyone hears my words and does not believe. So here you have a contrast between whoever believes in verse 46, who does not abide in darkness, and those who do not believe. They will face judgment. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. I'm not here to judge. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We see that same truth in John 3, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son to condemn the world. The world through him might be saved. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus came to a world that was already condemned. He came bringing salvation. But he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. That doesn't mean that they will not face judgment because to deny Jesus, to reject Jesus, brings judgment. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The gospel. To reject Jesus is to reject God and to reject eternal life. To reject the truth is to accept the consequences. Again, verse 49 and 50. I have not spoken to my own authority. The Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say what I should say and what I should speak. We focused on this at Christmas as we looked at the triune God of Christmas. God's role in the incarnation. The Son's role in the incarnation. God sends the Son. The Gospel is the message of the Father communicated through Jesus Christ. And what is this command? What is the message of the Gospel? Everlasting life. 
It's a message of everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The big idea of verses 44 to 50 is simply this. Jesus speaks for the Father. To reject Jesus is to reject God. To accept Jesus is to accept God. So as you look at the whole, at this passage, you see the sad reality, verses 37 to 43, that Israel rejected God. And there are consequences for that. To reject God is to reject life. In verse 44 to 50, there's a ray of hope. To accept Jesus is to accept God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Israel rejected? What will you do? Won't you believe? See, as we come to the end of this passage, points of application. Number one, believe. Believe. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, won't you even today believe? As I mentioned in the first, at the beginning, as we were talking about Israel's rejection of God, it's not a rejection, there, God's rejection of Israel is not a, it's not a rejection of a morally good or neutral individuals. They are sinners. And you and I are sinners. The Bible makes it clear that we have sinned and the penalty for sin is death. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and for me to take our sin, to pay for it. He died for you. He died for me. And what John is saying here is to reject Jesus is to accept penalty for your sins and to accept Jesus is to accept his payment, is to accept life eternal so the first point of application is learn from this example and don't reject Jesus it's an individual call to each and every one of us to place your faith in Christ alone for salvation, accept Jesus don't reject Jesus the reality is that every single one of us have to make that decision in our lives. Will we accept Jesus or will we reject Jesus? Not corporately, individually. You. Will you accept Jesus or will you reject Jesus? Has there ever been a time in your life when you have turned from your sin and you have turned to Christ in faith? If not, may that be today. There's a cost of rejecting Jesus. Don't reject him. Accept him. Secondly, walk in the light. Verses 44 to 46, Jesus talks about why he came. 
believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees, and he who sees, and he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If you are in Christ, you're not in darkness, you are in light. Therefore, as John says in John 12, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. That where I am, there my servant may be also. In verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. You are sons of the light. Follow God. Follow Christ. Walk in the light. And finally, speak boldly. Speak boldly. May we not be a stumbling block. I, I could not get past verses 42 and 43 this week. The fact that many believed but did not accept because of the Pharisees. They kept people from trusting in Jesus. That's a scary thought. May I not keep anyone from trusting in Jesus. May God keep me from loving the praise of men more than the praise of God. So I think that is a challenge to each and every one of us who are in Christ. Don't be a stumbling block. Walk in the light and point others to the light. Speak boldly of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be a hindrance to the gospel. We're going to close this morning with the song, In Christ Alone. It's number 239. Christ alone I stand. I hope that you have that hope. I pray that you have that hope this morning. That you are in Christ alone. That you're not hoping in your works. That you're not hoping in your family name. That you are hoping in Christ alone. That you would not just see who Jesus is. That you would accept who Jesus is. That you would place your faith in him even this morning. And for those of us that are in Christ, let us walk in the light. And let us spread the light. Let us share the gospel everywhere we go. Let us speak boldly.